Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. So if you haven't already, turn to Mark 2. We're going to look at all of chapter 2 and the first six verses of chapter 3, uh, 1 through 6. So go ahead and turn to that. Again, in the mobile app, there's sermon notes. If your life group leader hasn't sent it to the WhatsApp group, just ask them, like, hey, can I get those notes? And uh, we're going to get into this message. What I wanted to do was start with a video. And uh, what we're going to talk about is this whole idea of shaping and confronting our worldview. Because sometimes our worldview is something that we, we don't know clearly what it really looks like or how it shapes us. But really it shapes us all the time. And sometimes it gets us stuck into certain patterns of thinking that we can't get out of. And there's a really simple... Uh, I, uh, video of a, of a guy who's talking about worldview and, and our way of thinking, uh, and he uses math problems to do that. So uh, those of you who enjoy math, you'll probably, but no, even if you don't enjoy math, it's really simple math, so don't worry. And what I want you to do is as he's interviewing certain people with this math pattern, I want you to try to guess what he's trying to get at, all right? So we'll, let's watch this video together. Hey, let's be honest. How many of you got it? Okay, hand, oh, okay, less than I thought. I'm sorry, I judge you guys. <laughs> I mean, isn't it amazing how easy it is for, I mean, and we're watching the video, and we're watching, and it's, I was amazed by how exact their answers were across different people. They, they, they use the same number, they guess the same numbers, even though they were totally different pairs. But how easy it is for us to be so wired in a particular way of thinking that we can't think outside of that particular worldview. And that's a simple math problem. Then you just think about adding complexity of life upon that. Relationships, your jobs, your careers, your studies, your family, your wants, your un- you know, everything about life, you add that atop of you know, your worldview, and then everything becomes muddled, and it becomes that much more difficult to break out of what we assume should be right or the way our thinking ought to be compared to what's actually the truth underneath all the other things that are going on. And what I wanted to to share and propose is that life is definitely greater than a math problem in ascending order. But if we get tripped up by a math problem, how much more do we get tripped up by the gospel, by Jesus Christ? How much more should Christianity confront our worldview, help confront the way that we think, and force us to realize, hey, maybe the natural way, maybe the default that way that we operate and that we think isn't the way that Jesus intended us to. And that's my hope, is that the gospel, Jesus, who is the Son of God, should confront our very thought process, our very worldview, the way that we go about our lives, the way that we go about our, our, our mindset, our day-to-day. And if it hasn't, then maybe, just maybe, you haven't actually encountered Jesus, who is the Son of God. And I want to invite you to do that this morning. So we're going to look at that in Mark 6. And the one thing is that an encounter with the Son of God will either confront our worldview or will harden our hearts. The encounter with the Son of God will either confront our worldviews, whatever that may be, or it will harden our hearts. And there's a choice before us. And that's the choice that I think Mark, in this passage, he presents to us. What he does, again, Similar to last week, he presents several stories, and there's a pattern within these stories. And within this pattern, we see a a parallel between what Jesus does and how 
certain people who didn't share the worldview that Jesus had and how they respond and how it really exposes their worldview. They're forced to confront it, and in the end, whether or not they harden their hearts is up to their choice. So hopefully you've turned to Mark 2. We're going to look at the first 17 verses. We're going to talk about three ways that Jesus confronts our worldview. The first is in works or grace. The second, <clears throat> the second one is in tradition or our hearts, and the third is in life or death. So we're going to look at works and grace first and read verses 1 to 17. This is what it says. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said, to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. <clears throat> We, we're looking at this whole section and, and Jesus' confrontation of this whole worldview of works and grace. And in this story, and actually these are two stories that we see that Mark is painting. In these two stories, the first one we see Jesus uh, healing a paralytic. Uh, and, and many of us, we know this story, we love this story because it's, it really highlights the, the, the compassion of Jesus, the faith of the men. And we're oftentimes challenged like, oh, like I need to have faith like the paralytic and all of his friends. And I really need to learn to have faith because it's only when I have faith like that that Jesus does those kind of miracles. But it's really interesting. When you look at the whole context of this passage and when you look at the greater structure that Mark is trying to paint within these, you realize if it was all just about healing the paralytic, why did he talk about forgiveness of sins? If it was all about healing the paralytic, why did he use more than half of the story to talk about the response of the scribes? If anything, the, what seems to be the focus is not so much the healing of the paralytic, but the, the reaction of those who were against Jesus or were questioning him. And so the question for us is, why does Jesus tell the paralytic that his sins are forgiven? Why was that so important? And possibly, perhaps, 
Jesus was doing it on purpose. Now, we know Jesus is the Son of God. He does everything with a purpose. He, he is God. He knows all things. So we have to assume that he's got some kind of intention behind the things that he does and the things that he says. Well, if we think about it, if you were a paralytic, if your, if your friends were trying to get you to this miracle worker, this miracle healer, this miracle teacher, what is it that you would expect Jesus to do for you? Heal me. Heal me. Let, let me walk. Let, let me be healed. Let me be restored. I mean, that was presumably what the paralytic and what his friends were looking for. They weren't necessarily looking for forgiveness of sins. They were hoping for a miracle healing. Now, the question is then, why would Jesus totally disregard that desire for healing and instead say, your sins are forgiven? Now, that's the big question for us. And I think it really is revealed in the scribe's response. Now, it's interesting because the scribes don't even say anything. They're just thinking these things in his heart, in their hearts. Jesus, perceiving their spirit, because he knows all things, he knows what they're thinking, he calls them out. He says, why do you, why do you say this about me? Why do you think I'm blasphemy? And he points out to the scribes that he says what? I have come not to call the, the righteous, but the sinners. I, I've, I've come not because the, 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 the healthy need a doctor, but it's because the sick need a doctor. Now, what the scribes were really questioning, I don't think, and if you look at Old Testament law, if you knew the scribes, the scribes were excellent understanding uh, people who were understanding the law. They studied it all the time. They knew the in and outs. They are the ones who prescribed what was right or what was wrong. And their question about, oh, who could forgive sins but God alone, wasn't a question about how could anyone forgive sins? It wasn't the fact that forgiving of sins couldn't be possible. But really what they were getting at was, how could Jesus forgive sins in this way? How could Jesus forgive sins without going through the ritual sacrifice, without going through the procedure, without going through all the hoops and the, and the, and the uh, paperwork and all the bureaucracy? Look in Leviticus uh, chapter 4, verse 28b and 31. This is what... The law of Moses, which is what the scribes studied, this is what they prescribed in order for any kind of forgiveness of sins to happen. This is what it says. He shall bring, the person who sinned, he shall bring in his offering a goat, female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed, and all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn pleasing aroma to the Lord, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven." Right? So in order to receive forgiveness, what needs to happen? You got to offer a sacrifice. You got to do something. You got to bring something. You got to have a goat. You got to do a, You got to bring a burnt offering or a sin offering, a dove. That was what was required in the Mosaic law. And I mean, I was just thinking about like, what, what is it in Hong Kong? It's as if like, uh, you know, those of you who uh, want to get PR, all right, don't raise your hand, but how many of you want to get PR? And you have to what? You got to be here for seven years you got to have a valid visa. you got to either be a student or you got to work here. Those of us who are not local, you're like, what is that? You're like, oh. But those of us who are not from Hong Kong, you got to pay your dues. You have to work hard. you got to be here. you got to prove yourself in order to get that kind of status. And what Jesus was doing by saying, hey, your sins are forgiven without offering any of the sacrifices, to them it was like someone who walks in they're like, oh, I got zero quarantine. And the next day, they're like, oh, you know, and then the immigration office is like, okay, PR for you. 
I mean, how many of you would be like jumping up and down trying to throw a party for that person? Or how many of you would be like, what is going on? Why, why? That's not fair. That's not right. That's not according to the law. How come he didn't have to pay the dues that I did? And what Jesus is really trying to get at, or what the scribes were trying to get at is, hey, this isn't fair. This person didn't go through the ritual sacrifice. This, this person didn't pay his dues. He didn't do any work in order to deserve forgiveness. And he's saying he's not worthy. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter because I am the son of God. Now, the second story is similar to the first story because Jesus is now, now associating, not only does he forgive sin, but now he's associating with tax collectors and sinners. And the second question I wanted to ask is, why did Jesus go out to eat with tax collectors? Why was it that after he forgives this paralytic and the scribes asks this question, that he immediately goes to associate with sinners? There's no coincidence. And I really feel like Jesus does it intentionally to prove a point. Now, why tax collectors? Why did he call Levi? Of all the disciples that Mark could have written about that Jesus goes to call, why does he call Levi? Why? Because Levi was a tax collector. Who was a tax collector in those times? I mean, just think of like the worst criminal that you could ever think about in the history of time to your culture. Think about, you know, someone who has betrayed your country, someone who's totally gone against every fabric of what your society stands for, uh, someone who undermines the very value of uh, your, your, your faith or your community or your family. That was what a tax collector was. He, a tax collector was someone who colluded with the Roman government to go against the Jews. Essentially, they would extort. They would take money from the Jews and pass it to the Roman government because the Romans were the oppressors. And if you are a tax collector, essentially you're saying, I'm endorsing Roman oppression against the Jews, and I'm making my people poor as a result of that. And so Jews hated tax collectors. If anything, they thought tax collectors were anti-God, anti-Judaism. And so for Jesus to recline or to have dinner and to have this meal with tax collectors and sinners was morally reprehensible to the Jews and to the Pharisees. And then who do we see in that story again? Who but the Pharisees and the scribes? And the Pharisees and scribes, what do they do? They come to him and ask, why does your, why does your teacher, why does your rabbi, why does he associate, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' response, I, call, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Now, we have to ask again, what was the issue that the Pharisees had with Jesus? What was his problem? What were their problems? Was it because uh, that God can't forgive sins? Was it because that they didn't believe uh, sinners couldn't repent and come back into the society? No, as we saw in the, in the law, you could get forgiveness of sins. If, if the tax collector had repented of his ways and uh, given up his job and lived and gotten an honest job that was decent w within all of Judaism, would they have accepted that person? Possibly. If one of those quote-unquote sinners, which, you know, could have been all sorts of other people, prostitutes, if they'd given away, given up their ways and turned back to God and started reading the law and started fasting and doing all these holy things, would the Pharisees have accepted them, accepted them within the, the, the regular life of Jews? I think so. But what was their problem? That Jesus would willingly associate himself with tax collectors and sinners before they demonstrated 
anything or any inclination or any work or external result of righteousness that was according to what the Pharisees thought they, they should have. Essentially, what are they saying? They were saying that, Jesus, how can you do these things? How can you forgive sins? How can you associate with people who have not done anything to merit any kind of forgiveness or any kind of righteousness? How can you, how can you go against this worldview that we have that you have to do something in order to receive acceptance into God's kingdom? That ain't, that's not okay. That's not right. That's not what we believe, and that's not what we are so wired in. Because what, are, what were the Pharisees wired? What, what did they believe? They believed that you had to do something in order to stay within the, the realm of God, in order to stay within God's presence. And Jesus is confronting their worldview by saying, what did he come for? He didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come for the people who did all the right things. He came for the sinners. As, as humans, I mean, we're so wired for works. And, and if you put in the specific context of forgiveness that Jesus is doing in this passage, like, it really, it really comes out night and day. Like, because many of us, we're, we're like, oh, I'm not, you know, I've been, I've been growing my relationship with God, and I, I know I have some, you know, previous works tendencies, but I'm, I'm really not a person of works. I, I'm here by the grace of God, and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm not trying to do more things to accept you know, because of my relation with God. I'm not, I'm not works-oriented. But if you put it in the context of forgiveness, most, if not all of us, we fall into the same category as the Pharisees. Now, think about someone who wrongs you. Think about someone who's done something so bad against you, whether they uh, cheated on you, whether they were supposed to meet up with you at a certain time and they bailed on you without telling you, whether they did X, Y, and Z, they said something against you, they judged you, or what, what you, you fill in the blank. Think about that person this week. I know there's someone, there's gotta be someone. Think about that person, don't, don't look at them, okay? Don't look at them. But think about that person this week who hurt you or wronged you. And maybe legitimately they wronged you. And what does the process look like for you to forgive them? What needs to happen for you to forgive them? Usually it's a combination of the same things. They have to own it. They have to come up asking for forgiveness. They have to demonstrate that they are uh, humble. They have to demonstrate that they're sorry. They have to be the one coming before you and say, oh yeah, I was wrong and, you know, please, please accept my apology. We require them to do what? To do works. To demonstrate that they're contrite. To demonstrate that they're humble. To demonstrate that they are, are worthy of our forgiveness. And what did you just do? You were just like the Pharisees. I'm just like the Pharisees. We require works to restore some kind of relationship. Now, if we are, on, if we are the wrongdoer, we're the same way. And we feel so unworthy. And it's not before other people. It's also before God. We're like, oh, God, I haven't done all these things. And we feel like, oh, I am so far from God because I haven't done these things. I haven't gone to church. I haven't read my Bible. I haven't done a whole slew of things that good Christians are supposed to do. And I can't come clean before God because, man, I haven't done these things. And what have we fallen into? The very same mindset that the Pharisees did, that you have to do something. You have to do all these works in order to somehow merit God's love and forgiveness for you. And what does Jesus say? That's not how I came. That's not why I came. That's not my worldview. Your worldview is so skewed toward works that you can't even see it. Just like the math problem. You can't even get out of it. You can't even say the right numbers to get out of 
this whole worldview. You're so stuck into it. Tim Keller, in his quote, he says this. He says, you can't forgive somebody without absorbing the cost. Either that person pays for it or you do. On the cross, God didn't just forgive us. He paid the cost himself. Now, this explains why we can't get out of this workspace mentality. Why? Because forgiveness, regardless of who you are, regardless of what situation, someone's got to pay the cost. If you've been hurt, justice needs to be served. Someone has to pay the cost. And in forgiveness relationships, we're constantly expecting the other person to pay the cost because we're not going to bear the cost. We can't bear the cost. How many of you, you're so like full of love that if someone wrongs you and if they wrong you over and over again, you're totally okay with it. None of us are that holy. None of us are that loving. None of us are that righteous. But the only way forgiveness works is if your worldview shifts from I have to bear the cost or that other person has to bear the cost to Jesus bears the cost. The Son of God bears the cost. The only way we can break out of this worldview of works is if we know the Son of God is who he says he is. That's the only way. That is the only way. And in the context of forgiveness, someone has to bear the cost. And no longer can we do these works, but it has to be Jesus Christ. Now, I, I want to expand this to, to go just beyond forgiveness. Because many of us are like, okay, forgiveness, but that's, you know, I'm a, pretty, I'm a pretty amiable person. I'm a pretty likable person. Most people like me, and I don't really have conflicts, so I don't really fall into works. Now, let me expand this a little bit to just normal, everyday stuff. Has anyone, don't raise your hand, has anyone ever asked you the question, how are you doing spiritually? I, I hear some ha-ha-ha-ha. <laughs> I don't know why you're ha-ha-ha-ha, but I don't know if it's a funny question. But what is your natural response when someone asks you how you're doing spiritually? It's either one of two. Oh, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Like, I'm, I've been spending time with God. I've been, I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. I've been going to church. Oh, life has been great. I love my life group because we won the Harvest Game Challenges this past week. Like, oh, yeah. And if, if I didn't win it, you know, then, man, my relief with God, you know, I'm not doing well. Or, if, or, you know, so that's on the positive side. Some of us were like, oh, yeah, it's not doing well. I haven't, I feel so distant from God. I, I haven't prayed in, like, a month. I haven't read, I haven't opened my Bible in the last year, like, and all these, you know, verse of the day comes, but I ignore it. You know, I'm just like, I can't do anything. And, and right there in that response, what does it reveal about ourselves? It reveals that we are so locked into works. We are so locked into our relation with God. How we're doing spiritually is contingent and how much we've done or how much we haven't done. I'm, I am a great example of the more discouraged side, the more insecure. Not, I'm, I'm usually not on the other side, but like there have been so many times all through my life, and it was especially during the season where I was, uh, I was on fire for God. I had just come off a missions project. I made all these commitments to God. And I, and I said, Lord, I want to I study your Bible in depth for like two hours a week. I want to do cold evangelism, like going and reaching out to strangers once a week. I wanted to uh, pray every single day, go to morning prayer. We used to have morning prayer in our church. Praise the Lord. Some of you are like, praise the Lord. We don't have that. Because you're like, oh my God, that's going to be another work that I got to do. And I committed to that, and I, you know, on top of Life Group, on top of LCG, on top of Sunday Celebration, and serving on a ministry team, and I was like, you know, I was excited, I wanted to do those things, and someone would ask me, like, oh, how are you doing spiritually? And immediately I'd be like, oh, my, I, I can't, I'm just not doing well. And it was the same thing. I, I wasn't doing my Bible study. I wasn't reaching out to the people that I thought I should. I wasn't 
I wasn't on track for my prayer schedule. I would go to morning prayer, but uh, those of you who know me from that time, I would uh, be found sleeping <laughs> halfway through morning prayer on the ground, like in a fetal position. I would look like I'm praying, but I was really passed out. And so I would share, and I'd be like, yeah, I'm not really doing so well spiritually. And I remember one person who, you know, as they were talking with me and counseling me, and I was sharing that I wasn't doing well spiritually, and, you know, he confronted me, and he was saying, I was like, yeah, I'm not doing well spiritually because of all these reasons. He said, wrong answer. I was like, huh? <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, here I am trying to be humble, trying to be vulnerable, trying to be honest, trying to demonstrate that I'm like not doing well. And here I am looking for a little bit of, you know, I had to be honest. I was looking for a little bit of empathy and sympathy, right? I wanted someone to at least kind of pat me on the back like, it's okay, don't worry, you know, God loves you. But I, I was just trying to be honest. And here's like wrong, what are, you, what are you talking about wrong answer? There's no right or wrong answer. This is where I'm at. And I felt so judged. And, and he was like, dude, your relationship with God has nothing to do with how much you do or don't do. And by you measuring your relationship with God based on how much you do or don't do, you're never going to get close to God. You're never going to receive God's love because you're never going to be able to do enough for God to receive you and accept you. And you're never going to fail enough that God cannot love you nor accept you. Because God's love is not contingent on your works. He was exposing my mentality that I was so wired and so ingrained that I had to do certain things that I could not get out of this mindset that works were the way that I come to God, but that God forgives and God loves purely by his grace. He associates with tax collectors and sinners before they've done anything. He forgives the paralytic, and he forgives before even giving him a healing. And he demonstrates it. Why? To show us, and not just, uh, he's showing the Pharisees. He's saying, your worldview is so stuck on works. And Jesus, as the Son of God, he's saying, the only way you can confront that is if you know Jesus is the Son of God. And you know that he comes not to receive you by the things you do, but he comes because he is who he is, and he's come to do what he's done which is to die on the cross for us. And, and I'm praying that many of us, we fall into some of those categories. Either we're so proud because we've done so many good things and we're so on the spiritual high that we start judging other people and we start criticizing other people and we start doing these things when really it's all wrapped up in ourselves. Or on the other side, we get so insecure and so discouraged because we haven't been doing these things and then we start drifting away, we start pulling away and we start hiding this corner and we start uh, reclusing ourselves from community. We don't like it when other people ask us how we're doing or checking up on us because what? We're still stuck in those works. And Jesus is saying, on both sides, you're missing the point. And you don't see me as the son of God. That was the Pharisee's problem. That was the scribe's problem. And what the scribe said was very poignant. He said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is pointing to himself. He's saying, it's me. If you knew me as the son of God, then you would realize that you can come without your works. You can come without all these lists of things to do. He breaks that worldview not only in our works and grace, but in our tradition and heart. In verse 18 to 28, he says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those were with him. And how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is it not lawful for which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the second set of confrontations. And again, Jesus, if you look at it, there's a parallel, there's this uh, pattern of Jesus doing something. This time it's not healing. He's doing something with his disciples. And then what happens below? Behold, the Pharisees come and they start arguing with him. And the question is, why didn't Jesus and his disciples do what the Pharisees did? Well, when you, just to give us some background of fasting and Sabbath. I mean, how many of us, we hate fasting? Okay, some of us are honest. We hate fasting. You know, it's fasting, you know. But for the Pharisees, fasting was the best thing ever. Now, according to Jewish law, fasting was only required on certain occasions, special occasions. Uh, once a year, actually, uh, those of you who have some friends who are Jewish, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur was recent. And it's like their day of atonement. It's their, it's their holy day where you're supposed to fast in order for God and, and do the sacrifices for God to remove your sins. Now, what the rabbis did and what the teachers of the law did and what the Pharisees did, they expanded that to say, hey, if fasting is good for forgivenesses, why don't we fast more? And they began to teach that the more you fast, the more holy you were. And they instituted that as a tradition to say, the better you fast, the more you fast, the more you are in line with God's laws. Now, they did the same thing for fasting. Now, how many of us, we love Sabbath and rest? Okay, everyone's hand should be up, all right? Otherwise, you're, you're lying, unless some of you love working and exercising and doing all these things. Okay. The Sabbath was instituted by God in Genesis. It's the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. And so what the Pharisees did was they expanded that context of the Sabbath and they specified exactly what you could or could not do on the Sabbath because God said it's a day of rest. But then they started to outline exactly what you could or could not do on that day of rest. I want to give one example of something that you could or could not do. If a house fell, like the stones, you know, fell, and it crushed someone underneath, you could remove enough stones to figure out if that person was still alive or not. And if the person was alive, you could remove more stones to get them out. But if they were already dead, you would have to leave the corpse there and wait until sundown before you could remove the rest of the stones and bury that person. Like things like that. They would constantly add more and more laws to say, you could do this or you couldn't do that. And they began to do this to establish what? Their tradition. They have, we have all these sets of laws that weren't originally part of the original Mosaic law. But we're going to add laws on top of that called the oral tradition in order to establish a tradition so that we could say we're honoring God more than anything else. Now, tradition is not bad in and of itself. I mean, many of us, we have lots of traditions. We have lots of things that we hold dear that remind us of good things, whether it's for family, whether it's for our country, wherever we're from, whether it's for, you know, our, 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 our home or our, just the way that we've grown up and the way we lived. 
But the problem is when tradition ends up superseding God's law, when it ends up superseding God's relationship with us. Because tradition, what ends up happening, if we forget the real intent and purpose of it, it leads to what? Legalism. And what does legalism lead to? Judgmentalism. And it eventually leads to hardness of heart. Now, some of us, we, you know, we're like, yeah, that's not me. I don't really operate out of tradition. I just kind of do things like whatever I want to do. And I, I'm, I, I do away with all kind of tradition. Guess what? You are your own tradition. Your tradition is to ignore and disregard all other tradition. And that is a tradition that you hold above other people's traditions. And you fall into the very same trap that everyone else does. Now, I think for me and Erica, we had, a huge, we, had a, we had a little bit of conflict over tradition. And I realized, like, if anyone holds any tradition over anyone else, then we're missing the point. For me, I didn't grow up celebrating holidays. Like, for me, like, holidays was like, you just have a meal together as family and you move on with it. It wasn't really significant. For Erica, uh, and I got her permission to share this. Don't worry. <laughs> for Erica, for her, traditions are important. Holidays are important. Family time's important. And so when I didn't value the same traditions that she did, then what happened? We got into some kind of, you know, conflict and disagreement. And I, you know, for her, she was like, oh, like, you know, did you not understand this is our tradition? This is not what, you know, we as a family want to establish. And for me, I was like, what's so great about your tradition? I mean, I didn't say it that way, but <laughs> like in my head, in my head, I was like, so what? Like, What's the big deal about tradition? And I was like, who cares about tradition? And, and, and as we talked about it, I realized the reason why I had that kind of judgmental attitude was because my family never celebrated tradition. We didn't really value tradition. But as we're talking about I realized I was imposing my tradition, which is lack of tradition, on top of her. And I was getting judgmental, and I was getting frustrated, and I was getting like, what is going on? And for many of us, you, you could turn anything in tradition, anything you value, anything you hold above your relationship with God can become your tradition that you impose upon other people. And anything that you do as a good Christian, you can become your own tradition. Your Bible reading can become a tradition. Your, your prayer life can become a tradition. Your attendance in church can become a tradition. Any, any good work, any good thing that you do in the name of God can become your tradition if you make that the end-all, be-all. And the, and the hard part is so many of us, we do that subconsciously. We don't even think about it. And what is Jesus' response? And what does he say the only way out of your tradition is? He says this. He says, you can't fast while the bridegroom is with you. And he says this mysterious thing about cloth and wineskins. And then with his response to the Sabbath, he says, he, he gives us reference to the Old Testament. He's like, hey, don't you see David? David, he went into the temple. He, he ate the bread when that wasn't supposed to be done. And he's saying, I'm, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, so I'm, I'm greater than David. So what is he saying? The bottom line is he's saying is the only way that you can escape from your tradition is if you acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the only way. Why? Hey, he never... You notice, he, he, he treads a fine line. He doesn't say fasting is bad. He says, you don't fast when the bridegroom is there. Who's the bridegroom? It's Jesus. But you will fast when the bridegroom is what? Not there. 
He doesn't say fasting is bad. He's saying you're elevating your tradition of fasting at the wrong times and wrong places because you do not know who fasting is for. It's for Christ. And it's when Christ is not there that you fast. And he says, you do not know why the Sabbath is there. Why is it there? It's not for your laws to make yourself more holy, but it's to reflect and to what? Honor Christ. It's to honor Christ in the way you live your life, to know that you need rest, and the way that you honor Christ is you recognize your limits. And I think this is so hard for us to grasp because we think that holding on to tradition or letting go is either one extreme or the other, and we don't realize that it's not on this whole spectrum at all. But the way to escape out of this tradition and to understand God's heart is to know Jesus is the Son of God. He breaks, he confronts our worldview to say there's something totally different that you don't even know about. That's why in Matthew 5, verse 17 uh, through 20, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't come to abolish all tradition. He came to say, you do tradition understanding who the tradition is for. It is for the Son of God. And if we understand the Son of God, who that He is, and our focus is on Him, then we're going to be able to have this heart to be able to live out this tradition. The last area that he confronts us with is in life and death. We talked about works and grace, tradition and heart, and life and death. We're going to finish with this uh, chapter 3, first six verses. This is what it says. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him and how to destroy him. Now, I love, the more you study the Gospels and the more you study Scripture, you realize, like, it had to be written by God. Like, some of the way that they craft the, the text and the structure, it is it's like, wow, there's so much in it. Like, I don't know if any of you are like English nerds, but, you, you know, some of you, like, you're forced to do English, you know, and read literature, and you're like getting all these metaphors. Like, this is like times a million. God's scripture is amazing. And when you look at this confrontation, this last story, you realize that over the last three stories, this confrontation, it's constantly Jesus against the Pharisees, and Jesus against the Pharisees, and the confrontation gets stronger and stronger until this last story, which is the climax. Because you realize that in the first story, the scribes didn't say anything. They were just thinking things in their, in their heart. In the second story, they start to verbally confront Jesus, and then in this, the third story, what happens? They're silent. They're silent, and it really demonstrates that this is the point that Jesus is trying to get at. Because he's trying to demonstrate what happens when you're confronted that Jesus is the Son of God. Either you're going to confront and change your worldview, or you're going to harden your heart. There's only two options. 
You cannot tread the line in between. There's only two options. You could either recognize Jesus is the Son of God and we must live in light of Him, or you're going to harden your hearts. Now what happens? We see Jesus invites, and this time He's not waiting for them to confront Him. He invites them. He goes to the synagogue, the place where the law is being read, and He says, is it right? What is better? Should I do harm or should I do good? Now, for those Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they knew the Old Testament. They knew that Jesus was referring to an Old Testament law in Deuteronomy. And I'm going to read part of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, uh, and then skip down to verse 19. This is what he says, and read it together in the yellow. He says, see, I have set before you today, what? Life and good, death and evil. And then he gives this whole list of if you obey the commandments, if your heart turns away, you're going to all these punishments. And then in verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you what? Life and death, blessing and curse. What is Jesus doing? He's alluding to that. He's saying, is it, is it right to do good? Is it wrong to do harm on the Sabbath? And he's alluding to this passage that Moses is telling the Israelites, hey, you ought to do good. You have a choice. You could choose right or wrong. You could choose life or death. And this was to the Israelites, and he's recalling Moses' law, and he's pretty much telling the Pharisees, you have a choice right now. You could either harden your hearts, or you could recognize that there is someone greater than the law here today. And there's going to be consequences to hardening your hearts. And we see that the Pharisees, their response is silence. If, if there is any response that was the most condemning, the most revealing of their attitude in their hearts, what was that? It was their silence. And, and we'll notice that in this passage is one of the only times that the word angry and grieved is used in Jesus' mouth to describe who he is. There is no other context that Jesus used to describe as angry and grieved because of what? Their hardness of hearts. He was so angry, he was so grieved because they would not turn from their ways, from their tradition, from their works to the Son of God. Now, that doesn't finish the whole story because the question is, why did then Jesus ask them about saving life or killing? Why did he still heal the man with the withered hand? Because number one, the man's life wasn't in danger. Just healing the hand, it restored his hand and we see that he was actually healed but what did saving life and killing life have to do with this healing? It, it, didn't, it didn't seem like it was relevant at all. And why did Jesus proceed to heal the hand? It seemed like he was confronted. He was, it seemed he was like, like you know, when, when, whenever you have a bruise, and I don't know if some of your friends are really, like, annoying, and they like touching the bruise to make it, like, painful. I, some of you have those kind of friends. Like, that's what kind of Jesus was doing. He was like, ha-ha, you have a little bruise here, and I'm going to poke it. I'm going to aggravate it. Did he heal the man just for the man itself? Or did he realize there's something greater purpose for that? And if you look, and if you realize at the very end of the passage, what does it say? The Pharisees and the Herodians, they planned and they plotted to kill him. And I think Jesus knew that. And what is God saying? What is Mark saying through that? And I think what is Mark is saying is Jesus intentionally healed the man. Because he knew that the Pharisees, in their hardness of hearts, they would kill Jesus. They would plot to kill him. 
he said that, is it right to save life or to kill? Because they are, they are attacking Jesus because he's healing. He's doing good on the Sabbath. While in the whole time on the Sabbath, they're doing what? They're doing evil and they're plotting to kill Jesus. And the amazing thing is that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't like try to beg them. He doesn't like hold back. He doesn't, you know, he could have not healed the man's hand. He could have been like, hey, Pharisees, I know that you're trying to do this. Can, can you back up a little bit? Can, can you unharden your hearts a little bit? No, he goes right for it. Why? He wants to do that because it is only through him dying for us that that is the good works that Jesus is going to do. So what? So that we can experience his grace. It is only through going through that. It's only through following that tradition, the tradition of the Old Testament, which said there had to be a suffering servant that we could experience having a new heart. And it is only through Jesus' death and only through him being crucified on the cross that Jesus knew that we could have new life. See, the only way that we could get outside of our worldview, the only way that Jesus comes, he confronts our worldview, he begs us, he knows that we're going to have a hardness of heart, is he goes and does the very thing that we could not do ourselves. And he invites us to say, I am the one who does good works so that you can experience grace. I am the one who adheres to tradition so that you can have a new heart. I am the one who experiences death so that you can have life. I'm praying that that would be what we experience. We experience the Son of God so that we can break out of our, our self-centered and selfish and society-defined worldviews so that we could acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. And we can experience that grace of forgiveness and we can now live in light of who He is. And that's why the one thing is that encounter with God, the Son of God, will either confront our worldview or harden our hearts. There's just a couple next steps. The first is just inspect your own worldview. If you, if you are not aware, you don't know what your own worldview is, then there's no way you're going to be able to break out of it. And I think Jesus is going to bring a lot of situations. He's going to bring a lot of tension. He's going to bring a lot of emotions. You have to reflect. You have to be aware. Ask someone, hey, what's going on in my life? If you're an external processor, talk it through with someone. If you're an internal processor, go spend some time in reflection. Like, what is my worldview? What, do I, what am I susceptible to? The second thing is invite the Son of God into your life. Like, no matter how hard you try, I think that the hard part is some of us, we come to this worldview, it's like, oh man, I have this worldview. Let me try harder on my own to break out of it. When does that work? It never works. We cannot do these things on our own. That's precisely the issue that the Pharisees experienced. And they're like these amazing teachers of the law. Who are we to say that they're, we're that much better? We have to invite Jesus as the Son of God into our lives. We have to just ask him, like, Lord, please, I need you. And that, that, that requires humility. That requires repentance. And lastly, intercede for your heart. Inter let's pray. Let's, let's be a praying church. Let's be a church that is dependent on God to say, God, I, I can't do this on my own. I, I'm not able to. When we come to God in prayer, not with this workspace mentality, like, oh, I got to do this prayer in order to merit God's love. But we come to God in prayer because we're like, man, I am so needy. I am so dependent. It's going to completely change the way that we approach God and we see him as the son of God. Can we stand together? We're going to spend some just brief time in response and worship.
home. We might be in all different places right now. But one thing I think that we all do together is to say, Lord, I want you to be the son of God in my life. I want you to be king over my life, over my heart. Maybe there were certain things that God has spoke to you that you realize isn't in line with Jesus' worldview. And you're saying, you know, God, I want to change, but I can't, I can't do this on my own. And as soon as I do something as a work, I'm going to be caught in the same thing. And it feels like, oh, God, I'm stuck. I don't know how to get out of this. What is the only thing you can do? It's just to ask for help. So I want to invite us just, you know, in the next couple of minutes, can we do that? Can we invite the Son of God into our lives? Can we say, Lord, I need help. I need you. I can't do this on my own. I, 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 there's no way I can respond correctly in my own flesh, in my own heart. I need you. Shift, change me. Confront my worldview. Help me to break out. And I want to worship you. Can we do that? Can you just, you know, if you, if you want to pray, if you want to write some things down, I'll just give us just a couple of moments to do that. But let's just respond to him. And let's, let's ask for God for help. Let's come to him in a dependent and needy posture. And we'll sing and respond to him in worship. Let's respond together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Sometimes even, and I know this This is because this is what I struggle with, is I know that sometimes even in our response to God, we make it a work. We're like, God, I don't feel guilty enough. Or God, I'm trying to get myself to feel a certain thing and I don't feel it. And Jesus is saying, it's okay. I'm here, I'm with you, and I'm going to direct you. And you can just release all of those that striving and just come and just enjoy me and I want to invite us to just to come just to just to rest in his presence as we sing this song we're going to sing Jesus we're going to say be the center of of it all of everything we want you as the son of God to be the center of my whole life our church everything let's just let this song just as a worship stir our hearts mold our hearts and shift and change it that we will put him in the rightful place in our lives. Let's sing it together. 
Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.